So I have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. We are uh, continuing our Advent series, which is called Joy to the World, looking at uh, various ways in which Christ has come to bring joy to the world. And uh, we're looking this morning at Isaiah 35. My plan was to cover this whole chapter in one message this morning, and that did not come to fruition. Um, and uh, so we'll be covering it in two Sundays. So this, this Sunday, this morning, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. And then next Sunday on Christmas Day, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 10. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful words that speak of the joy of the redeemed. And if you would uh, please bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, O Lord, for revealing yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by revealing yourself to us, O Lord, through the written word as well. We pray now that as we come together, Lord, under the authority of your word, that you would speak to us that your Holy Spirit would be sweeping through this place and sweeping through our hearts to cultivate them and to make them ready for the receiving of your word, that it might be planted deep in us and bear abundant and transforming fruit for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to you, and may you do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this morning. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 4. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. You may be seated. I was uh, at an airport uh, many years ago, and I saw a a large crowd gathered at at one of the gates, and and they were causing quite a spectacle and quite a commotion. They uh, had streamers and balloons, and, and, and they were just beaming with excitement. And as I drew near, I could tell from the welcome home signs that it was a homecoming celebration. And the whole crowd, the aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins and grandparents and all that were gathered, they were all, their faces were just filled with joy that this person, whoever he or she was, was coming home. 
And that's the, the kind of, of picture that Isaiah paints in our text this morning. If you uh, were here last week, uh, you maybe remember that I mentioned Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, he wrote about a time when they would be uh, brought into exile in Babylon. But he also then pointed beyond that time of exile uh, to a time when God would bring his people home again. He points beyond the, the darkness of judgment and exile to the light of redemption. And we see in our text this morning uh, one of his prophetic pictures of redemption. Uh, like many of his prophecies, it is a picture that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It's one of those prophecies that has an, an immediate or a near future fulfillment, but it points beyond that. In fact, it points all the way to the, to the last day and its fulfillment in Christ. The heading of this text in the NIV is called the joy of the redeemed. And we see in these verses, in the whole of chapter 35, we see uh, four specific works of redemption. And like I mentioned, we're going to consider just uh, the first two in verses 1 through 4 this morning. And then next week, we'll consider the second two in verses 5 through 10. And as we look at these specific works of redemption and their fulfillment in Christ, we will see that we too are a people who have reason to be filled with joy. And so the first work of redemption that we see in these verses is that God brings the redeemed from death to life. Isaiah pictures this, this, this redemptive act, this redemptive work of, of bringing from death to life. He pictures it in, in, in language and in imagery of a transformation from a barren wilderness, a barren desert to a vibrant garden. And so he says, the desert land, uh, the desert and parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The crocus was a uh, desert flower that would burst into bloom almost instantly when the rain came. And the meaning of the word in this text in Hebrew is a little bit uncertain, so we don't know for sure if this was the flower that was uh, appeared in the, the deserts in, in the the, the, the deserts of, of Palestine. But what the, we do know is the context makes it clear that it was referring to some kind of desert flower that would bloom, uh, burst into bloom after a rainfall. And to see that was quite an astounding thing. The uh, reports, the uh, historical reports say that the, the whole desert would, would come to life. So one moment the desert was barren and dry, and then the next, after even sometimes the slightest rainfall, it was bursting with life and color from these desert flowers. And Isaiah says this is what God does for his people. This is a, a picture of his redemptive work. He brings them from from death and from barrenness to life. As Isaiah goes on to say in verse 7, the, the burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Uh, jackals were notorious uh, mangy creatures of the desert. They lived in these, these dry and barren lands, and grass and reeds and papyrus are, are plants, vegetation that, that made their, had their home in, in, in lush, moist, watery habitat. And so the picture is one of complete transformation from a dry and barren desert to a lush and thriving garden. This is what God does for his people. 
This is part of his work of redemption. And this picture stands in sharp contrast to to the, the way of the wicked, as described in Isaiah 34. In fact, these two chapters are really meant to be read together. They, they, uh, they stand in sharp contrast intentionally to each other. And so in, in uh, Isaiah 34, Isaiah pictured the fate of the wicked as an unraveling from life to death, from a lush garden to a barren land. In chapter 34, Edom stands as a symbol of all the enemies of God and his people. And Isaiah says of them in in chapter 34, he says, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation, it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. Again, those are creatures of the, of the desert, creatures of the night. This is what God will do to the enemies of his people. He will bring them from life to death, from fullness to barrenness. But not so the redeemed, Isaiah says. They will be brought in, exa- in, con- in complete polar opposite terms, from barrenness to fullness, from death to life, and they will be filled with joy. The parched land will be glad, Isaiah says. The wilderness will rejoice. The desert will shout for joy. For it was once a barren haunt will be bursting with life. We have reason for joy this Advent season because the redemptive work of God is the work of bringing people from death to life. And we see this redemptive work of God fulfilled in Christ, don't we? He, he came to the world as the giver of life. As John said in his gospel, in him, in, in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And Jesus himself said, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And he went on to say, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, notice the the present tense, if you believe you already in that moment have eternal life and will not be judged, but you have already crossed over from death to life. What an astounding thing for Jesus to say. That anybody who believes him and receives him in true faith in that moment has already crossed over from death to life to life. And he later described his life-giving essence as living bread. He said in John chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, my body, which I will give for the life of the world. The Apostle Paul describes this redemptive work in Christ in language that echoes that of Isaiah. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, dead, barren, no hope of life in you from within within yourself at all. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. From a barren land to a blooming garden, from dry deserts to bubbling springs. This is what God does for us in Christ. He is the life-giving God, and his work of redemption is a life-giving work. And so it is no wonder that the culmination of God's great redemptive plan and his great redemption story in Scripture is described as a garden that is sustained by the water of life. 
John describes it in the very last chapter of the Bible where he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. What a beautiful picture of life in the presence of our life-giving God. We have reason for joy because God brings the redeemed from death to life. And so let me ask you this morning, do you, do you know that joy? Do you live in that joy? You know, I, I think many of us are, are kind of, at least at times, we go through life sort of miserable and empty because we try to find our joy in, in the broken cisterns of the world, these things that can't hold life giving water. And so we keep scrounging for traces of joy, but we never find it because we're looking in barren lands. We're wandering aimlessly through the desert, searching for joy in the wastelands of entertainment and in the dry sands of earthly goods and the empty pits of human achievement. And we never find joy because we are scrounging for it in places that always fail to satisfy True joy is found in the giver of life. The joy for which we long is the joy of the redeemed. The joy that comes through a living relationship with Christ as the bread of life. And so we may keep trying to find it in these other places, but we never will. And so, for example, even you know, as satisfying as it is as a Minnesota Vikings fan to watch the Vikings pull off a historic, (laughs) record-breaking, come-from-behind win against the Indianapolis Colts yesterday and so clench the NFC North and leave the Packers and Lions and Bears in the dust as satisfying as that is, and it is quite satisfying. (laughs) It's still just a football game. And in the end, it doesn't produce any real and lasting and meaningful joy. The real joy of Christmas is found in the person lying in the manger. The one, as John says, whose life is the light of all mankind. Have you found this joy? Is your Christmas grounded in this joy, or is it so harried and and hectic with family plans and Christmas shopping that you missed it? Take time this Christmas to come to Christ. Like the shepherds, drop whatever else you're doing and and come to the manger. Come there again and again. Behold and and, and wonder the, the, the one who is the king of kings. Bask in his beauty, bathe in his mercy, abandon yourself to his truth, get lost in his teaching, let your restless soul find its rest and its worth in his presence. Discover in Christ the true joy of the redeemed, a joy that comes from knowing that we have been brought from death to life. That's the first redemptive work that brings joy that Isaiah shares with us in these verses. The second one is this, is that God drives out the fears of the redeemed. 
Isaiah says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. And say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Now, the images of, of feeble hands and of unsteady knees are images of fear because the, the feeble hands, in Hebrew, it's literally drooping hands, as it would be a literal translation, drooping hands, are, are the hands of one paralyzed by fear. It's a picture of, of sort of terrified resignation. A picture of helplessness induced by fear like a mouse that's cornered by a cat just standing there dumbfounded and motionless with these little drooping little paws. And we see the same idea in the image of the knees. The knees that give way are, are, are knees that are trembling with fear. You just have to remember at this time in the history of God's people, they were trembling and paralyzed by fear as they faced the threat of enemy nations around them. Remember, I mentioned last week how the, the Assyrian emperor, empire was like this dark cloud just sweeping across the land. And beyond the Assyrian empire was the Babylonian empire, which, would, which Isaiah also saw in his prophecies, looming over the people like these imposing and unbeatable enemies. And God speaks through Isaiah into the state of fear, he tells them not to be afraid. And he gives the reason why they're not to be afraid in verse 4. He says, be strong, do not fear. And here's the reason why, because your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And I've mentioned this before, but... One of my favorite scenes in the Avengers movies is the scene where Loki is threatening to invade the earth and the Avengers are rallying to defend it. And when Loki pays Iron Man a visit, uh, he tries to paralyze him with fear by threatening him. And so Loki says to Iron Man, I have an army. But Iron Man is not at all phased by the threat because he knows that he has something even better than an army on his side, he has the incredible Hulk. And so when Loki says, I have an army, Iron Man responds without fear and without hesitation, we have a Hulk. And as the scene unfolds, we see that his reason for confidence is well-founded as Loki and his army is indeed no match for Hulk and the Avengers. You can see why he is not afraid. And we see the same sentiment, not exactly the same picture, but we see the same sentiment in our text this morning. In the midst of imposing enemies and threatening forces and formidable armies, Isaiah says, we have a God. He says, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. The message is that enemy armies are no match for God. That there's no force of evil that can stand against the strong arm of the almighty God of the universe. And he is a God who fights for his people. He tramples enemies into the dust. As Isaiah will go on to say a few chapters later, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and all its people are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. The mightiest foe 
It's like a little insect in the hands of the almighty God, like a, like a little desert weed in the scorching sun. And if this, if this God is on our side, then we have nothing to fear. There's a reason why the most frequent command in the Bible, anybody know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? Do not fear, do not be afraid. There's a reason why, and the reason is because in our fallen condition and living in our fallen world, we are constantly plagued by fear. A recent study revealed the five most common phobias that people have, and this is just one, There's, there are other studies as well, but this particular study, I'll just list them to you in, in, uh, in order from number five to the number one, the most common phobia. And I'm sure you know many of these. So number, coming in at number five was sinophobia, which is the fear of dogs. Number four was agoraphobia, which we, uh, I think, often think of as a fear of crowds, although technically, in psychological terms, technically speaking, it is the fear of any place where escape may be difficult. That's, that's the technical meaning of agoraphobia. Number three was acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. Number two was aphidiophobia, the fear of snakes. And the idea is what the number one phobia... What? Yes, exactly. Arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Now, all told, there are over 500 officially identified phobias verified in medical journals and textbooks. And I'll share just a few of the, more, the, the lesser known phobias and see if you know what they are. There is pelidophobia, the fear of bald people. There is uh, geniophobia, the fear of chins. And there's this one, which you could maybe, maybe figure out by breaking the word into its constituent parts, uh, periscavadecatriophobia. Periscavadecatriophobia. If you look at the decatria 13, this is the fear of Friday the 13th. And last but not least, anybody know what pteranophobia is? It is the fear of being tickled by feathers. Just a few of the lesser known phobias. Now, the, the sheer abundance of phobias is an indication of just how prevalent fear is. That's really, these phobias, that's really just the surface of it, isn't it? At, at a deeper level, we battle what psychologists call core fears, those fears that act as sort of a constant and steady undertow in our lives. They're always, always there, always threatening to steal our joy. And so many people struggle with such core fears as the fear of abandonment and the fear of rejection, the fear of loneliness, the fear of failure, the fear of loss, and the fear of death. These are deep deep-rooted fears that can plague our lives and steal our joy. And, and maybe, like the people of Judah, we're weighed down by the fear of evil. There are evil powers in the world, people and nations capable of doing horrific things, uh, people and nations who are right now doing horrific things. The people of Judah lived under the, under the dark cloud of evil empires like Assyria and Babylon and the threat of domination and suffering was looming over them at all times. And it's into this fear that Isaiah speaks. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the trembling knees. 
Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance to save you. This is part of the the promise of redemption. We have no reason to fear because we belong to the God who is sovereign over all powers and evils and authorities. As the song, the popular song by Ben Fuller says, I'm a child of the Most High God and the Most High God's for me. The God we worship is the Most High God, the one true sovereign over all the universe, the one before whom all darkness must flee and all enemies submit. And again, we see this redemptive work fulfilled so clearly in Christ. For Paul says that Christ, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. And and the powers and authorities refer here to the spiritual forces of evil. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The one born in the manger came in meekness as a lamb to be slaughtered, but he will come again in majesty as the warrior king to conquer. As Paul said, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. John was given a vision of this warrior king, this conquering Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And what did he see? He saw a rider on a white horse who wages war and judges with justice. John said, his eye blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns, a symbol of of authority and, and sovereign rule. And he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven, he says, were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, John was given this vision in the context of the evil and the darkness of the Roman Empire a world regime in which Christians were targeted and persecuted and tortured to death in stadiums and arenas for entertainment. What a horrific time to be alive as a Christian. And the message of this vision was loud and clear. It was the message of Isaiah 35 fulfilled in Christ. Strengthen the hands that are paralyzed by fear. Steady your trembling knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. For Christ has come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, with a robe dipped in blood and a sword in his mouth. He will come to save you. There is no enemy that will stand against the one who is born to rule with an iron scepter. The writer of Hebrews says that we who receive Christ in true faith belong to a kingdom that that cannot be shaken. And so to those who are in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The evil powers of the world may threaten us and mock us and try to paralyze us with fear. We have an army, the world says, and the believer stands unfazed, saying, we have the Most High God, the warrior king, 
the rider on the white horse, the one before whom all darkness must flee, the one born to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We have a God. We have reason for joy because in Christ we are more than conquerors. In Christ, our enemies are silenced. In Christ, the powers of darkness scatter before us. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples to confront spiritual forces of evil and proclaim the message of the kingdom, they came back to him and they were filled with joy. Well, why were they filled with joy? Well, Luke says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Lord, in your name we have power and authority over even the the darkest of enemies. And like the 72 disciples, we have reason for joy because in Christ we are given authority over spiritual forces of evil and darkness. We have reason for joy because in Christ there is no room for fear. And let me ask you, Again, this Advent season, do you live in that joy? Do you know the the deep joy that comes through our redemption in Christ? It is in the words of U2's Bono, a defiant joy that cannot be shaken even by horrific evils and beastly empires. It is a joy grounded in deep trust in the God who always comes for his people The God who brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. The God who prepares a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. The God who comes with vengeance to wipe out grasshopper armies. A Christian writer recently shared a story about his elderly mother and they were living this is when they were living at a house in Chicago and, and she was so old and, and, and feeble that she couldn't make it up and down the stairs. So he would carry her, physically carry her up and down the stairs whenever she had to go up, up or down. And he says that as he, he would carry her up the steps, she, they would go a couple of steps and she would grab on the, the banister and hold it so tightly that, that they couldn't move. And he would say to her, Mom, you got to let go of the banister or we can't move. And she would look up at him with anxious eyes and say, but I'm afraid you're going to drop me. And he said, Mama, you, you got to trust me. I'm plenty strong. I can carry you all the way up and all the way down. I'm not going to drop you, but I am going to drop you right now if you don't let go of the banister. And so she would let go and they'd make a couple more steps and she'd grab on real tight again. And he said they'd go through that whole routine several times all the way up or all the way down the stairs. It is a picture of how we often are with God hanging on to the banisters of life, afraid when we have no reason to be afraid, not fully trusting in the God who carries us. God's message through Isaiah is to let go of the banister. Trust in the God who carries you. We have reason for joy because for those who are redeemed in Christ, for those who trust In our sovereign God, there is no room for fear. And so, in these beautiful words of Isaiah, we are given a picture of the joy of the redeemed in Christ. 
We have reason for joy because God brings the redeemed in Christ from death to life. And we have reason for joy because our life in Christ leaves no room for fear. And so as the crocus burst into bloom on the desert floor, bearing witness to the glorious provision of rain, may our lives this Advent season be living testimonies of joy to the glory of our Redeemer. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for the gift of joy. We praise you for your work of redemption in Christ. A work, O oh Lord, that brings us through true faith from death to life. And a work that drives out all fears. Lord, I pray that as we prepare our hearts in silence for this time of communion, that you'd work into us, O oh Lord, a deep and living and abiding joy. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive this beautiful vision of redemption in Christ. Lord, hear our silent prayers as we offer them to you this morning. O oh Lord, as the prophet Isaiah goes on to say, the redeemed of the Lord will walk in his presence in the city of Zion. Those whom the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Oh, Lord, we long in expectation for the day when our redemption will be fully and finally realized. And until then, oh, Lord, we live in the deep joy and hope that even now we are the redeemed in Christ. And we have reason for unshakable joy. Lord, may we live in it and may we be brought even deeper into it as we come to receive the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us. In his name we pray, amen.